This morning, would you turn your Bibles to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, and there are notes in your bulletin, there's also a Bible and notes on your Nova Community Church app, 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 7 today. I have some good news for us today, and the news is this, that Jesus, the good news is that Jesus is coming back soon. (laughs) I was really hoping for that sort of a response, actually, as I was putting this together, but knowing that Nova Community Church is not so much a preach and response, church. That was good enough for me this morning. (laughs) That's good news, that Jesus is coming back soon. But I also have some disappointing news, and the disappointing news is this. We don't have a clue when, where, or how. And that's kind of disappointing for, for many of us. God put all of us that are here on earth that follow him, he put all of us on the setup team or the welcome team and not on the scheduling and the programming team when it comes to that. Our text today, in our text, the Apostle Peter simply tells us how to live while we're waiting for for Jesus to come back. But one of the questions that I get, um, not just here, but I'll get it out in the community of people who are non-church attenders, when I'm speaking someplace, having lunch, and someone finds out that I'm a pastor, one of the questions that comes up quite often, and I'm, and I'm kind of at times puzzled to answer it, I'm, I'm not sure how I should answer, but the question is, are we in the end times? And I'll, I'll get asked that a lot. Are we in the end times? And Peter writes in our text today, in the first sentence, he says, the end of all things is near. Now, have you ever thought that in this scripture, uh, this scripture could be creating sort of a problem for us if Peter writes, the end of all things is near. For us as Bible believers, this could create a problem because Peter wrote this a couple thousand years ago. And so you got to think, if he writes, the end of all things is near, and it's been a few thousand years, what 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 do we do with that? Or if he's telling his readers that the end is near, Maybe he has a slightly different definition of near than most of us. And here's the skeptic's question, a question that skeptics will have, and they'll ask, if Christians claim that the Bible's reliable, that it's inerrant, it's the Word of God, how can we say things or read things in the Bible like the end of all things is near, and then 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for the end of all things? And for 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure out when and where and how, how Jesus will return. And for 2,000 years, people have been all wrong. It's kind of fun to hear about people's predictions about the coming of Jesus or the end of the world. You know, anytime there's a blood moon on Passover, someone will say, that, that's got to be it. Um, If you were around for Y2K at the turn of the century, people thought that that has to be it. Anytime there's a war, a battle in the Middle East, uh, 
someone's looking through their scriptures and trying to figure out, could this be a sign? And um, recently there was the end of the Mayan calendar, and someone thought, this, is, this has got to be it. The end of the Mayan calendar will signal when Jesus comes back. Or perhaps you were there looking in the sky on Sunday night, not realizing that SpaceX launched an evening rocket, and you're wondering what that is, and you're wondering, that looks like Jesus coming back. Um, and that was beautiful and terrifying all at the same time for people perhaps who didn't know. But here's what we know from the scriptures, that Jesus came and that he left. And before he left, he said, I'll be back. In John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus says, I will come back for you. He says, I'm, I'm, I go and prepare a place for you. In the book of Acts, when you read in the beginning part of the book of Acts and the disciples are getting equipped by Jesus and he's telling them, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got to leave, and then he ascends to heaven. And you can almost imagine they're there and they're looking up as Jesus ascends to heaven and gets hidden by the clouds. And they're looking up and they're thinking in their minds, perhaps um, he'll be back. And I wonder if they were just waiting there looking up and after a while their neck started to hurt because he's not coming back yet. And so then they go back, but they still stay in Jerusalem, we read in the book of Acts, as if he's going to come back anytime soon. And they seem to forget his commission when he said to them, go to the ends of the earth. And they didn't scatter until persecution came in Acts chapter 8. Let's take a look, though, at what Jesus said about his return in Mark chapter 13. In verse 32 in Mark chapter 13, this is what Jesus says. Can you forward the slide? Thanks. Verse 32 says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So no one knows. Not even the angels know. Only the Father knows. And this should give us some pause, I think. This should give us some pause before we start to speculate and try to impress others with our Bible knowledge about the end times. Because Jesus goes on to say in verse 33, Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, keep watch. But even with Jesus' words, Peter apparently thought, as we read here, um, that his return was imminent in Chapter 4, verse 7. And, and the, the Bible claims to be the Word of God, so we can, we can read it, and it says the end of all things is near. And we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. And we know that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. But that doesn't mean every phrase in the Bible, uh, found in the Bible, needs to be literally direct. There are colloquial phrases in the Bible. There are hyperboles. There are metaphors and just like we verbally communicate with each other at after uh, our worship this morning we're going to go out in the plaza and have coffee and donuts and things and someone will gather around that following fest table and and they'll say well no it's following fest i don't know what that is and someone will say it's awesome everyone will be there would they really mean everyone 
Of course not. And some people will take the scriptures and woodenly examine them. It's something, if something is causing you to stumble according to the Bible, you should cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. Is that a hyperbole? See, the people who wrote the Bible were not without error. But what they wrote was without error. There is a distinction between what they wrote and who they are. This is, the Bible is, a supernatural book. So why? Here's a good question. Why is Jesus taking so long to return? I think that's a, that's a great question. Peter wrote another letter. We call it Second Peter. I'm sure he wrote other letters also, but in the Bible there's First Peter and Second Peter. And the same guy who wrote The End of All Things is Near writes this in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why is Jesus taking so long to return? It's because every day, that goes by without the Lord returning. Rebellious women and men bound for hell are set free and forgiven and adopted into the family of God for eternity. And I know in our world today there are horrible injustices and abuse and lies and racism and crimes and evil. And for 2,000 years people cried out, to God, Maranatha, stop the injustices, fix the pain and, the, and, and heal the hurt and stop the evil. Lord, come quickly. People have been crying out those words for 2,000 years. And some days, truth be told, just honest, some days I want Jesus to wait until he comes back. That's, that's just honest. Now why? Part of the reason is because I meet people all the time that haven't yet crossed the line of faith. I met some, a family, a whole family, two little kids and a mom and a dad out on the plaza area. Their kids are riding their bikes and the mom and dad were just enjoying just the beauty of what God has given to us as a campus. And so we just started talking. They asked if this was a church. I said yes, and we just started talking about spiritual things. And it was very clear that they didn't believe in Jesus Christ. They didn't put their trust in him. They, they knew about him, but they didn't know anything about giving their lives to him and living for him. And I think, in my mind, I don't want Jesus to come back yet because I want another chance to talk with him. I, I'm praying God send someone in their life that would share with them and bring them to the point of decision. Holy Spirit, would you draw them unto yourself? And I'm glad, frankly, I'm glad that Jesus waited until after December 21st, 1969, because that's the day I gave my life to him. And some of you have been waiting. Some of you sitting here right now have been waiting to cross the line of faith, to give this Jesus the steering wheel of your life to be forgiven and to be set free. You've been waiting 
to ask Jesus to change you from the inside out and to be adopted into his family. But I want you to know when Jesus comes back, that offer is off the table. It's done. Are these the end times? I think they are. How much longer? No one knows. Only the Father. But in the meantime, Peter writes this, this text, this letter, and it's written to us, and it brings us to our text today. Over three months ago, we started this series, and we said Christians are aliens in the world. That's who Peter's writing to, a bunch of people who he, he said are exiles or sojourners, just sort of passing through this world, and, and we're calling this series Sojourners. And the first and prim primary citizenship for us is in heaven. It's not in some country. It's not in the United States. And our first and primary constitution is the Bible, not the governmental documents of, of your country, not the U.S. Constitution. And our first and, and primary king and commander-in-chief commander is not some elected official. It's Jesus Christ. And the dominant cravings of our heart are not for the treasures and the tributes of this world, but for the kingdom of God. And Jesus called us to live like sojourners. Even before Peter wrote this, this, this first letter, he wrote in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't worry. He says, don't worry about things like what should we eat or what should we drink or, or what kind of clothes do we have. For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first, he says, the kingdom in his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We here, those who give their life to Jesus Christ and live for him, are resident aliens on this earth. And, we're, and living like one is necessary for survival in this current culture. It's a tragedy, though, when a sojourner, one who's just passing through, falls in love with their temporary home. I, I read in the New Testament in Colossians and, um, and Philemon, the Apostle Paul writes these letters, and he writes about a man named Demas, who's a partner in the gospel with him along with Luke and, and John Mark. But in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes this, these words, these terrible words about Demas. He writes, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me, and he has gone away. It's a terrible tragedy when one who professes to be a Christian at one time, who raised their hand, who engages with a church community, it's a terrible tragedy when that person who says, I'm a believer, professes their faith in Jesus Christ and suddenly abandons their faith. Feels like a punch in the gut sometimes when I talk to someone who at one time shared a common mission and vision with me. We worship and serve Jesus together especially in a church community like Nova, we're pulling in the same direction. We're sharing common things together. And then one day, when I talk with them, they say, I don't believe that anymore. The Apostle John writes this. He says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Let's take a look at our text today. And we're going to call this section the lifestyle of a sojourner, someone who's passing through this earthly life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you had received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's take a look at our text today and identify what all this call the lifestyle of a resident alien. And as I read this, it makes sense that those who live in this life of a sojourner, an, a resident alien, a, a, an exile, are able to do this, live this life most successfully in the context of a smaller group of people that they're close friends that are like family together. First in this letter, Peter writes in our text today, number one, the life of a sojourner is characterized by sobriety in prayer. I like the word sobriety in prayer because he writes in verse seven, be alert and, so, and of sober mind so that you may pray. And the world, I think, has this inebriating power to it. The words be alert and sober literally means in your right mind. There's something about the things and the trends of our current culture and our present world that tends to put you out of your mind. And I think it makes you drunk in some ways. And it draws you away from intimacy with God through prayer. I... I think it's interesting that there's a great awareness. I just heard it, I heard it this morning, some, some young people, people who are younger, I'll say 35 and, and younger, sorry. Um, okay, 40, 40, oh, okay, 40, all right, 56 years of age and younger. <laughs> I think it's interesting, though, that there is awareness, whatever age you are, there's an awareness um, in a movement to consider the dangers of screen time and of social media. It, it, if you've updated your, uh, your, um, your phone or your device to the newest update, I think it's iOS 12.0.1 or something like, like that, there is a screen time, uh, um, tells you how much screen time. Um, and it's just amazing. I mean, you, just, you look at it and it'll say, well, you spent this much time on social media and this much time doing other things. and this, it's, it's, it's fascinating how it racks up. It just goes and goes and goes. And, and I hear young people, I, I haven't heard anyone on, on the older side, say that they're going to do a, a fast from social media, that they're going to stop. They're, gonna, they're not going to look at their screens for uh, maybe for work but not, not for pleasure because they know the dangers and they know that this current culture and the technology that drives a lot of it, it can make you drunk. It inebriates you to the things of God through prayer. There's an addicting quality to current technology that's taken over this world. And when you're addicted to something, it's almost impossible to connect yourself back to reality again. And that's what you do when you drink up the world. It puts you out of touch with the reality of things that really matter in your life. It, this connected relationship with God. And only one thing will make you a person of prayer. It's this person connected to the realities of things that matter in life. 
namely sobering up from the addicting, inebriating power of this world. And if you're drunk with the trappings of this current culture, and you can only think about the pleasures of this world, then you have lost your taste for heaven, I think. And I don't think you have a desire so much to pray. What can be, what can be done for a person who's showing signs of being addicted to the things of this world? Well, the answer, I think, is intervention. It's, it's what you do with an alcoholic. It's, you, you gather around the addicted loved one with, with people who just love and care for this person, and you say, you're destroying yourself, and you're destroying our relationship together. We see it, and even if you don't see this addiction, this drunkenness that you have, we love you too much to continue to let this happen. You have to seek help. And, it, and hopefully that person will say, yes, you're right, I need help. So well, then what do you do? Well, it's very clear in AA and NA and all those other things, and in the church, you put them in a small group of people who pray together, who love one another, who listen intently to each other's hearts. You encourage their soul. You hold them accountable. You support them, and you celebrate the wonderful things together as a community of sojourners. The first characteristic of someone who's passing through this life is they're sober in prayer. The second one is this. Peter writes, fervent in love. There's a fervency in love. In verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Sojourners, you know, we're, we're not perfect. In the stress of being in a foreign land, it can cause us to say things and do things that we regret. If you've ever traveled overseas and people are speaking a different language, for a while it's beautiful. And even you see beautiful things that you don't see here in the United States. And, and you hear foreign languages and you eat foreign foods and you're in a foreign land. But after a while, it does get stressful. And you do things and you say things that you regret. And things that hurt and can even destroy relationships that we need so badly, or it's so important that we remember to be fervent in our love for one another. These things can be covered and forgiven if life is to be livable together as aliens here on this, on this earth. So Peter calls us to love one another. And it's to let love cover the offense that can ruin family relationships that hold the sojourner community together. Now, Jesus told us to love our enemies, and he's told us to, to love all people. And it's true that we're to, we're to love in a special way the church family, the community of sojourners. But here in verse 8, Peter seems to call for something very special when he is, uses the phrase, love each other deeply. There is a special degree of love we need to have for one another. It's a fervent love. It's an earnest love. It's a strong and deep, strong love for one another. Not just a, a commitment, a love for those you don't like, or a heartfelt affection for those that are just around in the church family. But there's a depth to that love. So how do you do this? How do you grow deep in your love for the sojourner community, for an individual in the sojourner community? Well, 
The answer I want to suggest is you need to plan to get together and fan the flame of your love with intentional care in the intention of with the attention of a smaller group of people and the relationships that grow out of that. Love doesn't become deep. You don't get deep love and earnest love through neglect and through distance, but you get it through being closer together. Friendship and trust and affection grows through time spent together. That's why tonight we have something called the Leadership Collective, where we've invited anyone who's a servant leader in the church to come tonight at 5 o'clock. And, and so what we're going to have is a smaller group than this, a hundred or so people gathered, where we're going to renew our mission. We're going to renew our vision and recommit together. And we're going to appreciate one another, admire one another, restore our love for one another. We're going to worship together and pray. We're going to hear teaching together. We're going to share a meal together because it's in those environments of a smaller group that this depth of love begins to grow for the sojourner community. Peter writes, if you're going to have a lifestyle of one who's passing through this earth, you need to be sober in prayer. You need to be fervent in your love. The third is you need cheerful hospitality. He's so simple and straightforward in number three, cheerful hospitality. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So he knows, he understands. In other words, when you're a sojourner in a foreign land, you need to get together in each other's homes. And I think it's so remarkable in a book like 1 Peter that's so theologically weighty and as spiritual as 1 Peter is, we should read this simple and practical command, open your homes to each other and don't grumble about the hassle. It's as simple as that, right? So the question is this, how will you share your practical, tangible, and generous service and gifts to others? How will you do that? This week, the staff has enjoyed the generosity and love and care from many of you bringing gifts to us in this week, gifts of appreciation to us. And we've really enjoyed that. Thank you so much and for the weeks to come. And one of the greatest gifts you can receive when you're stressed out or you're sad or you're sick or hurting or, or maybe there's an addition to your family so there's one more human being in your home, a little one that cries all night, is one of the beautiful things is people bringing gifts of food and flowers, and prayer, and friendship. And I want to thank those of you who host small groups, the many small groups that we have here. And I, and I know that it takes intention to do that because then you have it marked off in your calendar. Oh, we can't go somewhere that night. We can't go to the movies or watch this show. We can't take a break this week because during this 10 or 11 week period of small groups, we're going to have people that are going to be over. And so you clean your home, I hope, and you, uh, uh, you plan and you clean up. You have to clean up after. And so thank you for being a host of a small group because it's, it's, uh, we're so grateful for that because you're welcoming people and showing hospitality, people who are beaten up by a foreign land and they can come to a safe place in your house. Peter writes, he says, if you want to, Understand the lifestyle of a sojourner. You, you have to be sober 
from the things of this world and you need to pray. You need to be deep in your love for one another. He says you need to offer cheerful hospitality. And the last one is this, to be stewards, to be administers of God's grace, managers of God's grace. I love what he says just in the beginning in verse 10 and 1 Peter chapter 4. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Most of the work of ministry here at Nova is not done by me, it's not done by the staff or, or even the board, it's done by the people of Nova. That's how all of this happens. And this text says, each of you. Note that it says, each of you has received a gift. The function of that gift is pretty simple. It's, it's meant for ministry, and that means that you're an agent, or you're a conduit, you're a channel. You're a vehicle of God's grace in its various forms, it says. And that the grace gift of God to others means that you don't expect anything back. It's given freely. It's an act of worship back to God as you serve one another with this. The major, of, the major ministry of Nova Community Church is this. We broker grace between God and his people. So don't miss that. We broker grace between God and his people by serving in these gifts. It's utterly critical, and it's so plain in this text. You all have gifts, and you are called to serve with these gifts. And this means that letting the grace gift of God come through your uniqueness is what this means. I, I, I love it. You should do it sometime. Just to observe the people of Nova Community Church operate in their gifts in various forms. And you could just, you could see it all happen, not just on a Sunday, but during the week. You could, it just happens all over the place all the time that they're serving in their, their gifts that they've been given, administering God's grace to one another. You see it in the results of the workday from last Saturday, the results in our campus, the, the beautification. Those are all God's grace gifts brokered by people serving with their giftedness. You know that every cup of coffee that you drink, every single one is a result of the service of someone's gift. That there is someone that fills those coffee pots with water and measures out the grounds carefully and sets it up. Makes sure that that Stainless steel cart has enough sugar and cream and, and um, napkins and cups. Do you know that someone comes here early on a Sunday operating in their gift and plugs those pots in so that they get, so they're ready and hot for you to get that cup of coffee? You realize that after we say the last amen in this worship service that people run to the kitchen and get those pots of coffee and put it on that cart and then wheel it out there. And then there's a stack of refreshments that if it, whatever last name that you're assigned to on this Sunday that you bring, and those are all gifts. And, and as you're partaking of that, it's just God's grace in your life administered by people using their gifts. And when I think about as we look out on our campus and I just even look through the doors and I see a part of that beautiful playground out there, it's because NOVA leaders use their leadership gifts and they led courageously 
that we have something like that, and there's going to be more. And then people like you, all of us, we gave generously using our, our gifts of giving so that something like this could be built. And then in the Nova campaign coordinators, they, they're using their gifts of administration to make sure things are done on time. And there's planning and there's architectural drawings that need to be vetted and, and, and board decisions that need to be made as we move forward. But all of that is as a result of God's gift. And it's as a result of God using people's service because he's gifted them to do this. But our grace gifts, they mostly happen in quiet ways. They happen in small ways, in secret ways, in kind ways, as acts of gifted servants administering God's grace. And they do this through fervent prayer, through sacrificial love, by showing cheerful hospitality, exercising their gifts as stewards of God's grace. And that is the lifestyle of a sojourner, according to 1 Peter, faithfully waiting for the hope of heaven. Amen.